Hello and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer, gender non-conforming person, I have learned a lot in my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know the opinions expressed are that of the guests and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Uh, welcome to Queering Desi. Uh, I'm very happy to say that this week we have Nick Sharma, who you may know as the blogger behind A Brown Table and Season. Um, Thank you for being on the show, Nick. Hi, thanks for having me on, Priya. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, your photographs and your blog and everything is so gorgeous, but I want to get into the nitty gritty and and the man behind it all. Uh, so if you can just take a second to introduce to our listeners who may or may not be familiar with you, uh, just a little bit about yourself and your pronouns, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um my name is Nick Sharma. I write a blog called A Brown Table. I'm also a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And as Priya mentioned, I have a book that came out last October called Season. And let's see, pronoun. Yeah, pronoun. That's important. Um, um, I'm a gay man. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I can use he, him. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Great. Awesome. Well, I will jump in where I think anyone would want to jump in, which is just how did you find your love for food and cooking? Oh, wow. Necessity. <laughs> <laughs> you had to eat. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I grew up in a very unconventional household where my mom, unlike most Indian mothers, actually hates to cook. And as a, she worked, she worked, you know, during the week, uh, you know, I didn't grow up wealthy. So both my parents worked to provide for us and we were often left alone at home. Um, when the age came, you know, we will, uh, the, we used to stay with our grandmother for when they were away. But for the most part, as we got older and our parents felt at least it was safe to leave me alone in the house. Um, that's when I started to cook because I hated what they were, you know, serving. It was the same thing all the time. And <laughs> um, I needed change. Mm. And so what do you, what do you think is like your first food memory of or at least getting your hands dirty uh maybe literally <laughs> into oh, yeah. cooking i think frying an egg that's probably also when my parents uh felt safe or felt it was safe to leave me alone with a gas stove because that's what in india you have gas stoves and then you have um the gas that's kind of rationed and delivered to your house every week in those large heavy red cylinders um which that also was like a frightening thing to learn how to change. But um, yeah, like learning how to fry an egg kind of made me comfortable with frying because the frying is, I think, probably one of the most frightful things as a child because they'll all, always tell you you're going to get burnt. <laughs> That's the yeah. first thing. So frying an egg uh, is what kind of um, was my introduction to cooking. And and how did your family react to that? Like, was there any kind of like, did your parents encourage you? Like, I, I would think that... I, I'm not to impose my own ideas on this. Right, right, right. I didn't grow up there, but yeah. I, I grew up here, but I did feel like a similar gender role thing of like, as a girl, okay. I was expected to be in the kitchen. Um, I wonder if that was a similar experience for you or if you faced any kind of not stuff like that. Not really. Cause both okay. my parents were pretty liberal. Um, 
they came from different parts of the country, different faiths. My mother's Catholic, my dad's Hindu. And I think because of that, they just um, had to deal with so much crap anyway to begin with, with their respective families. Um, they never really put pressure on me, on my sister. To, my, I have a younger sister, on, um, on either of us to do anything. Uh, in particular, I think the one thing that my dad probably would have loved for me to do was to like sports, especially cricket. And I actually hate sports and I hate cricket. <laughs> that must be hard. I mean, much harder than India. Right. <laughs> like, um, no, that's wonderful, though. I think like that parental support, especially initially, I'm sure was like a big proponent for you to be able to pursue that. It was a non-issue. It was never, it was a non-issue. So I never thought it would be an issue. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. I mean, I, I wonder how you go. I know that's a giant leap to make, but how do you go from, you know, frying an egg in India to like a brown table? If you had to give us like a summary, like how did you find this, this passion for it? You know, like you made a career out of something you love. I think that's something a lot of listeners can probably relate to or, or aspire to. So if you had to say like something, something monumental about your journey or how you kind of ended up starting a brown table, um, how would you kind of encapsulate that? I think one of the things that I found was um, when I moved to America, so I moved to America to study science. I actually trained to be a geneticist. Um, and I was in Cincinnati and um, cooking was never something that I actively planned to pursue at that point in my life. Um, and when I moved to America, one of the things that I realized was the representation of Indian food in general in America was very one dimensional. It was this North Indian picture of uh, from where my dad's family came, uh, but my mom's family is from Goa. And so I also grew up in Bombay and having lived in India for like 19 to 20 years of my life, um, I knew that what, there was more to India than that picture that was being framed. And so out of necessity, when I would go and look for the things that I wasn't being served in restaurants, I couldn't find them. I couldn't find them in books. I couldn't find them obviously in restaurants. And so I was missing something from India. So I started to talk about the food that I missed in India, specifically the stuff that was not being talked about. And then the other thing that I wanted to do was write about or basically cook food in a more practical sense or rather sensibility where I'm not really looking to cook dal every day. There's nothing wrong with dal but this is just an example that I'm tossing out, but I don't eat dal every day. Um, and often they're things that I just need to put together. But again, they're kind of, you know, flavors that I'm grew up with in India or things that I've experienced. And so I'm putting them together, but using my heritage as a backbone to guide me. Mm. Um, and so that's the stuff that I wanted to write about. I really kind of felt tired of all these rules about tradition. And so that, you know, tradition and what it is to be Indian or what people define as to be Indian. And I just felt that I just need to, you know, speak my mind and I'll do it through a blog. Hmm. And I mean, a brown table, I feel like it's a very iconic uh, name now. But looking back, I mean, I read in your in your Times profile as well that it was kind of an early backlash to the way you did the photos and that, you know, with the hands in the photos, your brown hands like and you did a lot of this photography yourself. So yeah. what was that? What was that journey like? How did you kind of envision the blog? And then furthermore, like, what was it like to kind of put that work out there and then get this kind of response? Well, there were two things. One of the first thing was that I grew up in a country where my skin color was not an issue. Mm. And so I've moved to this other country now, which is my adopted home. And, um, this, this thing suddenly became an issue, uh, 
which was kind of a, like a harsh shock for me because mm-hmm. uh, that's something you're not used to, right? I haven't dealt with, um, had a chance to deal with race issues before. And then the other thing is when you're on the internet, you're kind of putting information out there. You're putting yourself out there and you're becoming vulnerable. Um, and as someone who was just getting into it, it was quite frightening because you would get, I would get comments about the color of my skin being too dark for a photo you know, it was so dark that it looked like a hockey putt. I remember that comment by a reader mm-hmm. once. Um, but it it was kind of a weird thing to take a stab at me. Like if the recipe didn't work or you didn't like <laughs> the flavors in the recipe, that is criticism that's useful to me. The color of my skin or my sexuality, I really can't change that. It comes with me as a package. Um, and so that was something that I had to learn to get over uh, because it's part and it's a crappy thing for me to say, but it is something that I've learned now that you'll experience when you're in a public spectrum, especially when it's anonymous. Uh, People feel much more comfortable in passing comments like that. Um, So I think uh, you kind of learn and grow from those things in a way. I'm glad it happened because it gave me a bit of a thicker skin to deal with rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes you, I kind of think uh, that uh, one of the things that I was, you know, made me really uncomfortable was, oh, my gosh, I'm being so vulnerable right now by putting myself out there. But should I do it? Because it's just people are not connecting with it. Um, But at the same time, the problem with that, what I was telling myself was the fact that underrepresentation was the issue right here is the cause of this problem. So I needed to put myself out there and talk about it more. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a beautiful way to look at it. I think it's also something that takes a lot of mental work to get there. And it sounds like you did that work in that in that time period, because it's not something that's kind of a reflex for a lot of us, especially when you come from marginalized communities. Um, And especially in your case, if you haven't faced it before, I'm sure it takes some work to get there. So I I love that you got there. But I want to acknowledge that you probably did a lot of work to get there. No, I didn't. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, Because this also at that time, I was still in sciences, wasn't like something I was doing to make money, or even planning on to get in profession. I was just doing it for the fun of it. This was something that I didn't think all this stuff would come up, right? It was very unexpected. But um, eventually I did make it my career. But uh, I think one of the most important things was that it actually helped build self-confidence in me. Mm. Um, Because even one of the things when you come out as a, you know, you come out as queer or however you identify, you know, a lesbian or a gay man or you're questioning or bisexual, you are terrified of rejection, but it's such an important hurdle to come over once you do. You're you're kind of at that point where like, okay, I can work through things. Um, And I think giving people the power that always want to take you down uh, makes you weaker. It's not an easy conclusion to come to. Also, that's the other thing. It takes a bit of time. Um, It's difficult, but it has to be done. Absolutely. Just with the blog itself, what even give you the idea of like doing the photography? Was that also a hobby of yours? Because your photos are so striking and they're so powerful and they, you know, they focus on the food, but yet there's like a personality to it. You know, how did you kind of find photography and fold that into the food and the cooking and that kind of innovation that you were doing anyway? Sure. So one of the things that happened with the blog, um, and this is when I got into blogging, I realized that blogging was not only a bunch of words, but it was also a lot of photography. And in I would say the better part of it at that time, and maybe still is, is the photography, because that's what draws people 
to a blog. Um, and so I needed to learn how to photograph. So I decided I would teach myself how to photograph by reading books and practicing quite a bit. And then when I became comfortable enough to handle a camera, um, you know, through a lot of trial and error, I, I started to notice this is what I like. This is what I don't like about the way I was photographing things. Some things were hideous and some things, even though they looked nice visually, they still, even though I shot them, they didn't really appeal to me personally. And then over time, I kind of said, this is what I like. This is, I feel this is what I've been trying to convey through photos, because I think just like words are representative of an author, what they're going through or they're trying to convey a style of writing is, you know, something very personal often with the writer a style of photography can be, especially in food. It doesn't have to look like everyone else's. Um, and that was something that I tried to, um, you know, make it my own. Like, and that was important to me, that the writing as well as the food, as well as the food, the photos that were coming out would all be reflective of who I am as an individual. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically a triple threat. <laughs> you're a writer and you're a cook and you're a photographer. Uh, so you're amazing at everything. <laughs> oh gosh. Thank you. <laughs> um, on this podcast, we've talked about coming out extensively and I, I take the personal stance that it's, it's so much more than what it's meant, what it's made to be, especially in the mainstream queer community, especially here in America. But I am curious about your journey. Like, what was it like for you, especially growing up in India? Um, and, and I don't mean to focus solely on the coming out, but I eventually want to get to the point of like, you know, how, how your identities play into your food and your work. But I mean, what was your journey like? And, and what was it like to discover these other identities um, or parts of yourself? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned, I grew up in India at a really young age. Um, even before I was a teen, I knew I was attracted to men. Um, but again, in India, it's not. So, and I grew up in Bombay, which is a very liberal city. Um, you know, like I know girls go out late at night. And, you know, for, mo for the most part, they are safe in certain parts of the city compared yeah. to other parts of India. This is all relative, of course. But yeah. just to give some like background as to how Bombay is a liberal city, it was still not cool for me to kind of be open about what I found attractive or not when it came to um, sexuality. And um, growing up in India as it is as a child that came from two from parents that were two different faiths, it was socially very difficult. It would be brought up at school quite a bit. And then I had this added burden of, uh, and at that time I thought it was a burden of being gay or, or at least knowing that I was different from everyone else in class. So often I would get picked on. I was also tiny in school. Everyone was much bigger. Uh, so I get picked on quite a bit and bullied. And um, it was just something that I knew for to save my life, I couldn't talk about. And then the other perspectives um, of, you know, people who were queer in India at the time, I had none. I had nothing to compare it to, like anybody who had, had a happy story. I knew, uh, like my parents would talk about gay people uh, that they knew, um, you know. Uh, so like, you know, vaguely names would be mentioned, like uh, Freddie Mercury uh, from Queen, who was bisexual, and my parents thought he was gay. Um, and then you had... Uh, Elton John. So those were like the like celebrities that my parents kind of knew of, but they didn't live in India really. Right. And so there was nothing like I knew like, Oh, someone had fallen in love with the man, got married and was happy. No, none of that was possible. And so 
one of the things that I was really fortunate um, with my parents was that uh, cable TV and literature always available. So those were the kind of things that exposed me to this different world where I realized that in the West, it may not have been accepted everywhere, but it was a lot more open than it was where I came from. And so I knew that you know, if I wanted to be free and to live a free life as a gay man, I would need to leave and move to the West. Um, and so early on, I decided that I would need to come to America. And I picked America because I had family on my dad's side that lived here. So I had a much better perspective of I knew where I was going. Not necessarily I'd want to stay with them, but just they were there. And it kind of like, you know, I had heard about it. They had lived, I'd heard stories. So I knew America better than I knew any other country. Um, And so that's how, um, you know, like I came to America to study. um, And then within the first six months, I came out. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, do you think like, do you sense that kind of shift in India? Do you think in this day and in this time or in this kind of like political climate, do you wish that you had stayed? Do you think it would be possible? Like you see, you know, section 377 gets overturned. You see pride parades now. That's Mm -hmm. something I didn't even see growing up. And I went back to India every year with my family. Like, do you, do you sense that kind of shift as well? Uh, let's see. It's, I can't predict like how, on the unknown, because yeah. I didn't take that path. So I don't no, know. Of course. I went with what the options I thought were available to me and what sure, I had sure. make most of. Um, but I will say this, coming out for me was a really positive experience overall with my family, uh, which took me by surprise. I was a little nervous because, um, you know, both sides of the family could be conservative or they could go with the flow or they might not. Uh, my grandfather, when he found out, and he found out after I got married, uh, he was 90, I want to say 92. And he was cool with it. Wow. Uh, it was, it, again, it was like a non-issue for him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's said to me a lot that times had changed quite a bit. My cousins, obviously, you know, they grew up all over the world. And they don't live in India. So they had global exposure and they were younger than me. So a different generation. And so things are easy. You know, it's easy. It's like a non, again, another non-issue. But there were parts like, like my aunts, uh, like one of my aunts was a little uncomfortable um, about my, like telling my grandparents at the time because um, she felt he was old. What if something happened? Then he has a shock. <laughs> but none of that happened. So... Uh, there are, I mean, you know, there's always like a little bit of friction, but it isn't, I never had like a bad experience, like a lot of kids go through where their families kick them out. So I was really fortunate in that. I wasn't cut off. Um, but at the same time, I also did it in such a way that I was independent and didn't need anyone. Um, so if they had to throw me out, I'd be, you know, I'd be unhappy and sad, but I'd also be fine financially because I had left home. Absolutely. I mean, do you think that that made an impact here, though, as well? Like, uh, I know that who you are and all your backgrounds kind of play into your your food and Mm -hmm. and your work. But when you talk about, you know, starting a brown table and you talk about skin color and realizing that for the first time, do you think this other identity also, uh, you know, impacted your experience in any way, even before you kind of got to the the food or, you know, the work that you do now? Do you think that 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 journey from there to here also, uh, you know, had an impact or the other identity as well versus like racism, for example? Sure. I think my 
identities are part of me. They also don't define me completely. Um, I mean, of course, at the end of the day, I would love to live in a day and age where my skin color, my sexuality um, are irrelevant to who I am. But at the time we live in right now, it is it is an issue. Um, And I think it also makes me much more conscious about this because I always uh, think about the past when I was, you know, questioning my identity, who I am. I didn't have anyone to turn to or role models that I knew of. So it became really difficult, even in food media at the time, there weren't uh, that I had seen at least any Indian people, uh, you know, any people of color. Um, You know, I wanted to see Indian kids who were mixed uh, of different faiths uh, being written about, but I never saw that perspective. Um, And I still don't see a lot about that. Um, and so I felt it, it big made me a little more conscious about these things in life in general. So I'm not going to say it's my political mission. <laughs> I, I'm not very, um, adept at that, but I feel it does make me more conscious to talk about my experiences at least and say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I went through. And I came through it, came out of it in a positive way. Um, and so I'm always thinking about the kid that's probably going through something similar and then they don't feel alone because I'm sure you went through this when you were coming out too, that feeling of being alone with, you know, whether it's sexuality or you don't fit in in a place because of a click or everyone looks, you know, certain when you don't, it's the most horrifying and um, I would say depressing feeling in the world because you're just sitting there and you feel like you don't belong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've told this story before, but I, you know, when I started to realize that something was different about me and then I eventually kind of slapped a label on it and figured it out, mm-hmm. I like Googled gay Daisy uh-huh. to see like if it was like a thing because I didn't know. And I found this one website called Gacy Family that was based in Mumbai. Okay. And, and it was like, oh, there's like people, but they're like on the other side of the world. Yeah. And I started writing for them under a pseudonym. And I wrote about like my angst and my, you know, (laughs) of being in the the closet and, you know, what are my parents going to say? And, you know, I'm in America and I'm, but I'm so cultural. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And I eventually like, because of that website, because of a comment on one of my articles found a South Asian queer organization in LA called Satrang. Okay. I've heard of that. Yeah. So it started like my activist journey, but, but all of that is to say like, it was it was this moment of like, uh, can I be like both of these things? Like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if there are even other people like me. Like, I either see, you know, South Asian people or I see queer people and yeah. I don't ever see the both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thankful now that in like the 10 plus years since it's like changed. Yeah. But yeah, that I can totally relate to that. And I absolutely agree. I think it's one of those things where like, you don't know. And now you know, if, if, if the org here, Salga, you know, we, we marched in the India day parade and I'm always thinking of like, we're going to see like that one kid (laughs) in the crowd who's going to be like, you know, holding their, their mom or dad's hand and be like, you know, Oh, that's like, that's possible. Yeah. Because we didn't grow up seeing that, but, but we can now make that impact for for others. So yeah, I definitely very much relate to that. Right. And uh, you know, the other thing is that I feel a lot more responsible, especially since I've been fortunate enough to have a certain level of success in my career. I feel part of that requires me to give back. I'm not saying that I need to be a martyr at the same time. I just, you know, I think just being visible out there, like you said, for that kid that's, you know, in the parade, 
means so much to that child. And for me, it would have meant so much. I know that personally. It would have meant so much to me as a child. It would have made me a much more confident child uh, back then. And I wasn't. I was very shy because of all these things. I was constantly afraid of public speaking because even when you speak in public, you sound gay. Right. And you're like, am I going to sound gay? Are people going to make fun of me? Uh, what's going to happen? So, I mean, it's just like the little things and you don't realize it. I, I feel till you don't have something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why like now, you know, when I, I thinking back to like I Googled gay Daisy, like now I see like, you know, Mumbai Pride and yeah. a lot of a lot of smaller even cities doing Pride, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that in India and and realizing what that visibility might do, especially in, you know, post 377 and all that. But yeah, it's kind of amazing to see a little bit of that shift even happening now. Um I do want to ask, like you, you mentioned with with your Indian identity mm-hmm. and kind of your origins and your roots impacting, you know, your food. How how do all your identities, including you know being brown, being gay, um, and everything about who you are, kind of influence your food? Not simply because it's you know your run of the mill Indian food. It it has so much of you in there and so much creativity in there. How how do your identities influence that? <sighs> Oh, God, that's such a hard question because I never pay attention to that. <laughs> so no, always... I think that's an answer. That is exactly the okay, answer. I feel like sometimes these questions require a very philosophical answer and no, I never have anything intelligent have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we can be as honest and real on this podcast as you would like. So don't worry about it. I mean, I think that says something, don't you? Really? Well, <laughs> I don't pay attention to things on it. No, I think, I mean... Just to hear that, I don't know if this is true for you, but what I take away from that is that it's just who you are and you do the thing that you love and you do what's natural and and creative and kind of comes out of you. And it's not something that you're like, I'm going to put myself into my food. And how do I do that? Like, you don't have to think about it, you know? Right. I mean, one of the things that I always, the only thing I will say, I consciously make a decision when I'm writing uh, writing a recipe or developing a recipe, even when I was working on the cookbook. My goal is just to make recipes easy for home cooks. I want them to be flavorful and tasty. And at the same time, the only representation that I really want to do is showcase flavors from India or America, because those are the two cultures that come from my two homes. And then, of course, experiences that I've had around the world now as an adult. But right. that's pretty much what, if any, like direction is being focused on. Uh, when I write about food, it's always about the pursuit of flavor because that's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, and that's probably the only in- intended goal. Everything else is usually very unplanned in my life. Yeah. No, that's that's wonderful. I think that's what makes your cookbook so interesting is that it's very I mean, you're you're a great writer as well, but I think oh, it, it reads like a narrative kind of like I feel like I'm like in your life. I'm like cooking with you in the kitchen almost like I get that sense from the way that you write about about food. And I think that that speaks volumes about how you carry yourself or how you carry your identities, even if it's not <laughs> a philosophical answer or anything like that. I think it just speaks volumes itself. Oh, thank you. Now we're going to get to some fun food stuff. I want to ask you a bunch of different things that I'm just curious about with food, but I'll start with like, what is your favorite comfort food? Like what's your like go-to of like, mm. you know, it's rainy and cold and or sick, uh, or whatever it is, I, you know? So when it comes, I have a sweet tooth. So I really like desserts. And the first thing that I usually go to is kheer. I like it warm. Or I like it cold. The second thing that I really like is ice cream, especially something that's more fruity and tart in 
composition. I'll go for that. And then when it comes to savory off late, I've been drawn back to the chicken chow mein like they make in India, the Indo-Chinese style. And the only re- I think the only reason is because I found a place that's actually doing a really great job near my house. And so for the past couple of weeks, once a week, I go and get a large box. Oh my God. Wait, do you want to shout out the restaurant or are you not allowed to do that? I don't think I'm allowed to. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. We'll keep it a mystery. That's cool. But I have, I have tweeted about it indirectly. Okay. So kind of people know. Right. Okay. We'll just tell people to go check out your Twitter anyway. So, um, with your, I think what, what blows me away about your innovation with cooking is that it's, it's, it's traditional, but not traditional. Like, I feel the flavors and the the kind of concept of Indian food and Indianness in general. But I know that it's so different, and it is kind of that blend that you're talking about of all these of both your homes and all of that. But I'm curious about what you think of like what Americans think Indian food is. Like, what is one myth about Indian oh, food that you would dispel here? Um, I'm not going to lead you on, but chicken tikka masala can start. <laughs> but like, what is what is something about, you know, like Indian food or, you know, food here that that you would like to shoot down? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, wa- I want to say one thing. And, you know, my dad's Hindu. It's not like I'm downplaying Hinduism in any way, but, uh, you know, trying to put it down. But the fact of the thing is that the representation of what it is to be Indian or Indian culture when it comes to food, movies, it's always the... Uh, the more dominant religion. And I guess that makes sense because um, that was the, you know, like it were the North Indians that moved to Britain and then that's at the stage of what Indian food is. Uh, but often I'll get questions about um, like naan and stuff. And I do like naan, but I honestly never ate naan at home till I moved to America and I had to learn how to make it because I had a blog and that was a question that everyone kept asking me. Um, I, but... I think one of the one of the things I want people to really appreciate India for is the richness and diversity that we have in that country. I mean, in India, we've got one of the largest populations in the world. We've got so many people from different faiths. They've come from different parts of the world over many centuries and changed the way India is represented when it comes to food and culture and everything. So you've got... Um, you know, people who came from the Mughal Empire, you've got uh, the Persians, you've got the Parsis, the Iranians, you've got the Christians, the Jews. Um, there's so many people. And then there are even tribes that came in from Africa uh, that settled down, I, I want to say in Rajasthan or Gujarat, one of those states, I can't remember, the Siddhis. But I think these are, like, there's so much going on and we're just focused on this narrative of, Chicken tikka masala, like you said, or butter chicken, uh, naan. Uh, there's just so much more. We're not talking about all these other tasty things. And I feel people are losing out on that because um, no one's writing about those things. Yeah. No one's well, talking you about are. I, I try, but I, I don't think I'm qualified enough to write about those communities because I've never been there. I don't know much about it. Yeah, I mean, it would take it would take more more people and and just that diversity of of thing. But I think you try. I think that's what I make a weak attempt. I I try to do my best in kind of showing people and telling them that, you know, like it's like the simple things. Like often I'll get a question about, oh, I love Indian weddings. Oh, I can't wait to go to my first Indian wedding. And I'll ask them why. And they'll say, because it's so many days. It's so colorful. And I have to then be the ass that tells them that, um, 
you know, you're just referring to a Hindu wedding, right? There are other cultures in India, other faiths uh, where they aren't that long and they're not that colorful also. Because like my mom's side of the family, they're Christian. Uh, weddings aren't that colorful. It's pretty much like a Western wedding with like maybe like two other days that they do something. Uh, but then on the Hindu side of my dad's family, of course, those weddings are long depending on how much money people have. Um, so it's kind of like this narrative that's been romanticized quite a bit uh, that I j- for me, it's very bizarre because I do not want to deny any part of my heritage. I want to talk about both because they're both essential to me. They are what made me who I am today as a writer, uh, you know, trying to represent the culture that I grew up with. Um, and I think it would be dishonest for me to like pick one and favor one over the other. So I have to do my best um, as long as I'm writing about food and represent my culture the way I know it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think that there's one, you know, kind of cuisine or even a, you know, a particular chef or things that have inspired you in terms of or of your innovation or your journey in terms of finding, you know, your style or your creativity in, in this line of work? Like, do you is there any kind of specific inspiration that you can point to in that way? I want to say Claudia Rodin from um, the Egyptian writer. Um, Claudia Rodin was someone that I came across when I was trying to learn how to cook Middle Eastern food. And someone told me that she's a really good, um, I didn't know, this is before I got into food, so I didn't know who Claudia Rodin was. Um, I didn't know anybody uh, except for like a couple of the TV people. But um, when I got one of her books and I went through it, I said, wow, there's uh, so many nuances and variations to a single dish within different parts of the Middle East. And that's what makes it beautiful. And she did such a beautiful job throughout her life of just, I I mean, she's doing it. I don't know if she has a new book coming out, but all her books, they kind of go through that process of sharing different perspectives on the same thing in different ways. So you realize how beautiful and rich something is. And that to me has been the, I think Claudia Rodin is one of the most inspirational writers that I look up to for that very reason is that she's made it her life's mission to talk about these things and not leave anyone behind. Yeah. And yeah, no, absolutely. I think you, I mean, I think you said it perfectly. Um, I want to know though, is there a recipe like disaster that you want to share with us of like something that you've tried to make that just turned out really horrible? Oh my God. Last week I was trying to do a lemon pound cake recipe and honestly, everything I did to try, (laughs) I tried different combinations of fat to make the cake moist. Everything turned out like crap. So I still haven't succeeded in everything was a sweet yet goopy mess after it was done. <laughs> so everything went into the trash can. I think the flavors are right. Like it tastes good. I just need to get this texture right. But that's been a big disaster right now that's still occupying my mind. But yeah. uh, the probably the worst disaster that I've had is mixing Ruafza and rice as a kid, thinking this was going to be something cool. It's not. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Um, that's just you wanting to have best of both worlds because rose are amazing and rice is amazing. Right. <laughs> you could put rose water and rice. Just put put rose outside. Ugh. <laughs> oh my god, I kind of want to do it just to see the pink color. <laughs> yeah, what, what, I don't remember the dye that's in it, but it's not a natural yeah. dye for the longest time. I remember in India, everyone saying, "Drink it, beta. It's it's good for you, rose." <laughs> like shut like, drink the shut <laughs> But it's, it's, it's like pure syrup. Yeah, yeah, it's just sugar syrup with 
ro- maybe the essence of rose and then a lot of dyes. A lot of dyes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Speaking of special ingredients though, is there a, you know, a specific ingredient that you think like, or a, you know, a secret ingredient that you think you can add to a dish to kind of change it completely? Like one magical thing that if you put it in it, like besides Rosa, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it's sweet, I'll stop with sweet as always. Um, play with things that are aromatic. I'll because I'm not a big fan of adding too much sweeteners to things, even though I have a sweet tooth, because I feel it then takes away from the taste of everything. But adding floral components like rose water or uh, kevra water, which is also pandan, screw pine, um, or even cardamom, you know, those kind of play with your mind in a way, because we're so used to thinking of them in a sweet aspect. Things start to taste sweeter, even though they're not just because your mind is uh, confused by that of essence or that aroma. And then for savory stuff, I would recommend, um, let's see. God, that's a hard one. I think for savory stuff, one of my favorite ingredients right now is black cumin, Kalajira, uh, just because cumin is so overused. But black cumin is quite different. Uh, it's a thinner seed. It's obviously black, which is why it's called like the name is. Um, and then I like to use it when I bake savory stuff also. Like I'll put it on, like people put sesame seeds on something when they're baking. I'll actually, instead of that, I'll use uh, black cumin. It gives a very interesting perfume that I can't really describe. I'm going to say it's nutty, but I feel the word nutty is used way too often when describing spices when they get toasted, especially mm. seeds. Um, yeah. It has to be a different word. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, curious to try that because I don't think I've ever, I've never seen it or and or had it. I only, I only have regular jira in my kitchen, so I can't say that I'm familiar with it. But now I'm curious. I want to go get some. Um, I am. I'll be honest. I, lo- I love your cookbook and I love your recipes. Oh, you. But anytime I look at a a cookbook, I am the kind of person who will be like, this is too much. Mm-hmm. I have like three things in my fridge mm-hmm. and or only 10 minutes before I completely lose all energy. Mm-hmm. What do you think is like a, a way or is there a way to like, like an, a quick fix? Or what do you do, I guess, in your life, even if you're like, I have three things in my fridge. How do you kind of like turn that into a dish? Like, do you have any tips for, for, for folks like me that are, yeah, like, yeah. you know, a weeknight meal where you're like, I only have three things. How do I turn this into food? So one of the things I always tell people, of course, when writing the book, I really didn't want to take a step back when talking about spices because I feel I had to do it or someone else will eventually. Yeah. Um, and those are, and as a cook, uh, someone who writes about food, I always have a collection of spices at home at all times, but at the end of the day, I'm also a very lazy cook, extremely lazy cook. So like if you look at the book, too, there are things where I'm taking things and basically tossing them in a blender to make a sauce or a marinade and then throwing that over something and, you know, grilling, frying or whatever. Uh, and I think that is an approach to take. Do things that actually make life easy for you. I hate cleaning dishes. So I always tell people the blender is like my boyfriend in the kitchen. Go to the blender uh, because you can, you know, whip something up. You can make... Um, like I said, a sauce, you could make a chutney and then use the chutney to roast something. So like in the book, I did an, um, a leftover kale and arugula chutney um, mm, because yeah. I always end up with like bits of like, you know, half cup of salad greens that have eventually get tossed out and I hate wasting. So I started something like that. What I usually tell people if, say, uh, 
what are the okay tell me what are the three most common things you have in your fridge um eggs yogurt okay milk uh bread sometimes not in the fridge obviously but those are like the staples i'll have butter i might have cheese mm-hmm. okay um and usually like scallions ginger some kind of something like i may run out of like mm-hmm. fresh greens like kale and stuff really fast mm-hmm. so i might have some like because it's a whole bunch of scallions i have some sure. extra scallions or some extra like broccoli like little little mm-hmm. things that kind of like i'm like how does this go together <laughs> like how do i you know throw yeah. this together in something so i mean if you have a bunch of vegetables that you think can be roasted in the oven i would just season them with whatever spices you have on hand that I mean, think about it. You don't have to add 10 different spices. I would probably just add two things. Um, you know, you could just play with something as, as simple as a chili pepper. Um, you know, if you use Kashmiri chili powder or if you are a little more fancy and you had Aleppo pepper at home or Mirage, you could probably add those in there or um, maybe some cumin you know, Mm, and roast it in the oven. Uh, You don't have to use olive oil all the time. I would actually recommend trying something like ghee, not from a health perspective, because I hate recommending any ingredients for health reasons or diets. Uh, Just do it for flavor. You know, you use it wisely and use it for flavor. So ghee actually will give a really delicious aroma to food as well as taste. And so I'll usually just add like a teaspoon of ghee uh, to a bunch of carrots and season them with cumin and salt and stick them in the oven and call it a day. Uh, Eggs. Usually what I do for breakfast sometimes, um, I do have a fried egg every now and then. Instead of using olive oil, like I said, I'll use ghee. Uh, Sometimes what I'll do is I'll boil an egg and then um, season it with, um, you know, like sashimi togarashi. Like, you know, seasoning uh, spice mix is also quite useful. Sometimes they're good shortcuts. Um, I usually don't keep too many because I don't end up really using the more... um, I don't use them all at the same frequency. Uh, but like I'll keep two, three things on hand. And then if I have them, uh, you know, add that on top of a boiled egg, you know, or you could also just heat a bit of melted butter and throw some garam masala in there to infuse it and cook it. I don't like raw garam masala or turmeric. Um, and then pour that melted butter over a boiled egg and with some salt and eat it. Ooh, um, that sounds really good. I mean, it's just something really simple, right? You just yeah. have to play with it a little bit. Yeah. And I always tell people, do not go to an Indian store or a spice store and buy everything you read on the list. Just start with something small, get comfortable, and then move on. Because that's how you learn as a cook. Absolutely. No, that's a that's a great point. I'm excited to try that. But one of the most uh, exciting recipes I think that is in your book is the Bombay frittata. Oh. I'm sure there's been a great response to that because <laughs> a lot of people I talk to are like, yep, Bombay frittata. I know that guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but do you have a favorite recipe from from season? Maybe uh, something to entice readers to or our listeners to to maybe pick up the, oh the book? God. I feel like I'm asked to pick a child. Uh, I mean, I basically <laughs> am. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of great recipes. We'll just start with that. <laughs> you can pick a, f- a handful. It doesn't have to be one. You know, when peaches come in season, do the broiled peaches. Because that's the easiest dessert you will ever make. It's flavorful. It's warm. It's sweet. It's sour. It uses uh, an infused maple vinegar syrup with spices. And you're essentially just broiling the peaches with a little bit of butter and then pouring that liquid on top. You can put creme fraiche if you want or not. I like creme fraiche. Um, And that's it. It's the tastiest thing you'll make. Um, And then another sweet dish I would say is the bibinka, but it's not really fall anymore, but I eat sweet potatoes year round. So the sweet potato bibinka is quite easy. You make it the night before in a blender. Like I said, easy, lazy recipes and then bake it. 
let it sit and eat it the next day. Uh, the other uh, savory thing you could make that's really easy, uh, let's see, I don't have the book in front of me, but um, like the kebabs or something like that, you could make kebabs and then just eat them like burgers, make them larger. Um, or, you know, a couple of the roast uh, vegetable dishes in the book, they're all really easy. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book and show people that, hey, mm. it's not that hard to cook something that's... Yeah you know, at home and it's fun. It can be fun. No, absolutely. I love the variety that you have as well, just in case people are not familiar. Like you have everything from like little appetizers to salads to, you know, eggs or meat or veggies, like sweets, like you said. I mean, and, and of course my favorite, the drinks, (laughs) (laughs) but you kind of make this comprehensive, like there is something for everybody. I mean, you could also make like a 20 course meal or you could be like, I love these five things, or this is where I need to go with it. And, and kind of, it opens the door to the rest of the things and the ingredients. Um, but I love that there's such variety in the book as well. Yeah, I kind of want people to feel comfortable when they come in the kitchen, not intimidated, because it's not my goal to show off how much I know or don't know. It's more about just, hey, I want you, like you said, I want people to come on this journey with me and cook with me. And we start simple, like, you know, you can make the cucumber salad with just a pinch of toasted cumin. And then if you want to go fancy, you can make the tomato salad uh, with the um, um, tamarind sauce. So it's kind of like a play on caprese. Um but so I try to keep things for different levels of skills in the kitchen, people who are, you know, starting out or someone who has is much more comfortable, you know, exploring. Absolutely. Um, just to wrap up, I, uh, I will ask you what I always ask uh, our guests, which is if you could look back on your whole journey, which is a, a small thing, I know. <laughs> um, if you if you could just look back and give your younger self um, some advice, what would you say? Uh, what would I say? God. Uh, read more. I should have read more. And I, I, I didn't have the opportunity to travel, but I wish I had traveled a lot and done things out of outside science way before. Hmm. That's a good one. I read more is, is my current one as well. <laughs> I, I still try to do my best because yeah. there's so much to learn. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Nick. This has been wonderful. I, I would love for you to shout out the book as well um, and, and where people can follow you online and, and check out your blog if you want to mention all of that as well as we wrap up. Sure. So the book uh, season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food by Chronicle Books is available everywhere where books are sold um, in bookstores as well as online at Amazon. And you can follow me at a brown table on Instagram, as well as on Twitter. And my site is called www.abrowntable.com. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Nick. This was this was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer, but <laughs> I will let <laughs> you go at this point. But thank you so much. This was this was great. Of course. Thank you, Priya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Desi. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every other week. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at QueeringDaisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at QueeringDaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.